This is the story of the last 30 days of my father's life. Luis Vilches passed away December 4th, 2023. And I have shared this episode in Spanish. This is the English version. Thank you for listening to Tales of Recovery. This is Gris Alves, your host. Some of you guys might have listened to the podcast that I shared around November 13th, right after I had come home from a retreat that I led down in Mexico, where as I drove down there, you know, there's all these women coming up for the retreat, and my sister called me, she had been to, to see the doctor with my dad to get the, you know, opinion of a neurosci- of a neurosurgeon regarding the fact that my dad's recently found brain tumor was not I mean, you could operate it, but he was probably going to die on the operating table. And the doctor told my sister at that appointment, you know what, if it was my dad, I would take him to travel and visit all his friends and um, be really close to him. So I got this news, you know, on a Friday evening when I'm in Mexico at the retreat. And if you didn't listen to that podcast regarding my dad in the ice. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about how this started. Late in October, I was in Mexico City and when I got a couple of messages stating that my dad, you know, was, well, the first message I got as I'm heading up to the mountains to retreat with no Wi-Fi is my daughter texting me like, Mom, do you have a abuela's location? I'm like, what in the heck? Every time I leave, this shit happens. What do you mean do I have a abuela's location? I do. I have them on the find my friends thing, but there's no Wi-Fi here. So what the heck? What's going on? And, you know, the Wi-Fi was iffy. You had to go down to the kitchen and stand really still next to the Wi-Fi machine. And eventually, a couple hours later, my daughter, one of her messages came in saying, oh, we found him. Never mind. I thought, well, okay, no big deal. We were up in the retreat three, four days. When we came back down the mountain, bing, 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 50,000 freaking messages coming in about... Well, Abuelo was up at three in the morning, knocking on the door saying, good morning, time for breakfast. And I was like, what is going on? So, you know, and a couple of messages, my sister sent a group text for me and my brother saying, we got to have a family meeting. Something's up with our dad and we need to, you know, figure out what we're going to do. Um, I had no idea what was going on, but immediately on the way down from Tepoztlan to Mexico City, I emailed this beautiful company of women that recruit assistants and helpers to come and, you know, work at your home. And I and emailed them and I said, listen, I need a male uh, to help my dad. He's 88, somebody who has experience in some type of nursing and who's strong. And I just need somebody to watch him 24-7 because, well, the doctor had told, you know, I mean, I didn't really know it was going to be 24-7. I just said I need somebody to watch him. I mean, if he's going off at three in the morning. and So I sent the email, got home to San Diego, talked to my dad. And I was like, what's going on, dad? Oh, nothing. I'm fine. Yeah, I think I'm okay. I was just, you know, a little nervous. I don't know what's going on. Um, but I said, well, I'm home now. Everything's fine. Go to bed. You know, it was late night. He went to bed. And at 12 in the midnight, I get a phone call from him. I mean, I live literally 15 steps from him, right? The Airbnb is in my backyard. So I, I, I answer the phone and he's telling me, I'm lost somewhere. 
in a hotel. I don't know what the hell, but somebody left me here. And I'm thinking, in a hotel? What in the, what do you mean? I thought, oh shit, this guy took an Uber, went to the hotel. What the? So I, I ran to the back because, by the way, I had already taken his car keys because earlier that day he thought he was going to drive over to the Target for something. I'm like, you're not driving, brother. You're waking up at three in the morning. You're going to end up in Las Vegas. Uh, sorry, but you're 88 and it's time that I keep the keys. <laughs> so when I walked over to his apartment, he was sitting on the bed. It was midnight. He'd taken a shower and he was just sitting there really confused thinking, what's going on? I'm like, dad, you're in my house. He's like, no, I'm in this hotel and I'm really disoriented. I'm like, dad, you're fine here. Let's lay down. We're going to go to sleep. I'm going to stay here with you. Um, we're not going anywhere right now. You're in the house. See? you're in my house. He's like, Oh my gosh, I'm what's going on. I'm really scared. I'm like, yeah, it's fine, dad. You don't need to be scared. I'm going to sleep over with you. Okay. I mean, I was exhausted. It was midnight. We lay down on the bed and he's like, Oh, I'm desperate. This is so hard. I'm like, I know dad, but I'm here with you and we're going to see the doctor again soon. Don't worry about it. You know, he went to bed and then he would wake up like five minutes later. He's like, wait, wait, where are we again? I'm like, dad, we're in your room. And he'd open up his eyes and there's, there's these paintings that my cousin made there of these vehicles, these really cool cars that are up in the wall. And he was like, oh yeah, yeah, that's why those paintings are up. On, that's why the cars are on the wall. I'm like, yeah, that's why the cars are on the wall. We got to go to sleep now, brother. And so the next morning, you know, we woke up and he was fine. He was pretty oriented. And the doctors were saying, yeah, we're going to, you know, get a CT scan a few weeks from here. I'm like, I don't think we're going to wait a few weeks. We're going to get it now. Well, the insurance, we, I don't give a fuck about the insurance. How much is it to get a CAT scan tomorrow? Cash. Like, why do we have to wait for insurance to approve this shit? My dad's completely disoriented. He's probably had a stroke. So it was $150 to get the CAT scan. I'm like, we're just going to pay cash. The next day, my sister has sent me an email saying, you know what? those girls, they don't have uh they don't have any male assistance people. It's just women to come help. I'm like, no, email them back. They have to have a guy. There has to be somebody who can come here and watch my dad because they're casting. And, you know, just like synchronicities or I don't know who sent us this person, but literally 20 minutes later, we get an email from this agency saying, we actually have this guy and he's 61 years old. He's a retired social worker his name is Mr. Fisher, and he, you know, he, he can go work with you guys. He's got great references. He's helped other families before uh, with elderly men. And so here's his, here's his contact information. Interview him. He basically interviewed us because I was like, we need somebody right now. I cannot be walking around, you know, watching my dad 24-7. My father has been so independent this entire time. I mean, literally... Four days before this happened, he drove himself to Domino's. You know, with his friends, that's that's his thing. He likes to play Domino's. He's an engineer and he's you know super mathematical and and uh, ever since I can remember, him and his friends were always you know every Friday, every Wednesday night, all the guys would come over and they would play Domino's and crack jokes and it was like a huge thing at the house always since I was little. So he was pretty together until all of a sudden this started to happen so mr fisher shows up 
we interview him. He comes over. We He came over the day of the CAT scan. So when we drove my dad to get the CT scan, my father was pretty worried. And he didn't like this Mr. Fisher guy walking, <laughs> walking around, you know, helping him out. But we get the CAT scan. And half an hour later, the doctor calls me and she's like, well, maybe it wasn't half an hour later. Maybe it was like an hour and a half later telling me that she's so, so sorry. But there is this tumor that was not there six months ago. Six months ago, my dad had a CAT scan because he'd gotten a pacemaker. He wasn't feeling well going to the doctor. Oh, need a pacemaker. His heart's slowing down. And they did all the scans. So comparing it to the June CAT scan to this one, there was tremendous growth, which meant this was a very aggressive tumor. The doctor told me, I'm really sorry, but um, yeah, your dad, uh, he's going to die of this. I don't know when. Could be two months. Could be four months. But we need to get him on this medication as soon as possible, which is some type of cortisone to reduce the swelling. It's like a steroid. And I told my brother and sister, dude, we got to tell my dad. You got to meet me at the house because I'm not going to tell him this by myself. You know, they came over. We told them it was freaking brutal. We talked about, you know, okay, what are what are what is the plan here? And, and you know, my dad and I have had the my five wishes dot org plan, which is a plan of, you know, advanced directive and what do you want to, us to do when you're when you die and do you want to be cremated? Do you want to be buried? What do you want us to say at your funeral? You know, what how do you want us to remember you? It's a very intense but very simple process of this form and that we had done it four or five years ago before my mom died. And I actually had reviewed it with my dad during about the time of the pacemaker because I thought, well, you know, if the shit is a fan, we got to be ready. So when this happened, my brother and sister came over. We told my dad about it and we filled it. We reviewed the form again and we talked about, you know, where do you want to be buried and this and that. And I really don't remember if I talked about this in the ice bath um, podcast, but, you know, my brother asked him, like, well, Dad, you know, since we're going to want to get buried, do you want me to put, do you mind if we put my mom's ashes inside of you and, you know, in your coffin? And my dad was like, actually, no, that's okay. You don't really have to. <laughs> you know, my brother was like, well, what do you mean? She's my mom. She's got to, you know, and my, my mom and dad never really got along. I said, brother, why are you wanting to prolong this misery? Till death do them part, you know, leave the guy alone. But he you know, kept insisting. And it was just in between laughter and this intensity of, we're literally talking about burying my dad while he's alive and putting my mom in there with him. You know, what is going on? I kept just walking around cleaning, you know, cleaning the apartment. My sister was telling me, you need to stop and sit here. I said, no, I'm always here. I live with this dude. I'm constantly here. I'm going to clean while you finish the damn form. You know, it was just like, ah, this is crazy and so surreal. And we're still, you know, with my dad keeping it together for him, for all of us, we're still in a little bit of shock. And, you know, the doctor said, well, now we need to go talk to the neurosurgeon on Friday. But Friday, I had to leave for this retreat that I was leading down in Mexico. It was like 20 women coming. We have a cold crew. And I said, okay, I'm going to, my sister said, I'll go to the doctor with him. You do your retreat. And I went down there, you know, I drove down there. Um, 
all the women arrived, we're getting ready, you know, to do the opening circle and ceremony, and we had, you know, so the Saiban ceremony the next day, and the Temascal and the Swachal, it's like a huge, you know, I mean, it's a big commitment, it's a big responsibility, and I do these all the time, so I knew it wasn't going to be a big deal, but I literally, when I got there, my sister called and said, okay, we, we, we saw the surgeon, and he said that if this was his dad, he would take him to travel and see all of his friends and that he would just hang out with them and definitely no operation because, you know, medically speaking, they have to, you know, cover all their bases. Yes, you could do an MRI, operate the tumor, see what kind it is. They already figured it was a geoposphoma or something like that. It's like a very aggressive brain tumor, cancer brain tumor that just Nobody knows really where it comes from. And she told me this right, you know, an hour before we did the opening circle at the retreat. And I told all the ladies, you know, hey, this is what's going on. So I'm a little bit tender. We, op- we you know, we, we opened it up. And I don't know, you may or may not have heard the story if you listened to the podcast before. But the next morning when we got into the ice, we were doing ice therapy. And, and I'm in that ice therapy constantly, once a month. They have it at the gym. You know, I have one a tab in my house. I do lots of therapies for wellness. And But when I got in the ice, even before I got in the ice, I completely left my body. I have no idea. I don't even remember getting in the ice to begin with. But I went in, played, you know, you're in there for three minutes. You play a song that you choose. I got out. I went over to the kitchen and started sobbing to my friend Sergio. My father is dying. My father's going to die. And I don't remember any of this. I just completely got out of my body. You know, my mind got out of my body, but my emotions were still in. And I was weeping and kept repeating the same thing over and over again. And everybody got pretty scared, so they took me to the hospital. The doctor said I had hypothermia, but I was in there three minutes and it was the sun was hitting my face. I mean, it was like this emotional outburst because it was too much, too intense for me to realize that my father was dying. And you know, you guys know that I helped my mom die. But it's a very different attachment that I had with this, with my dad, you know, with this dude. And so when I was on the way to the hospital, I was barely beginning to come to when I, and I realized like, oh my God, I'm so confused. I have no idea where I am. What's my name? Hold on a minute. I have two kids, I'm married, my name is Grisela, like trying to remember all these things, feeling super scared, noticing that I could have died. And I just kept thinking, this is what my dad is feeling right now. This is what he's going through. He's confused. He doesn't know what's up. Death is at the door. And, you know, like it's like a panic. And it's also like, an unknowing of really an unknowing of unknowing nothing. You don't know anything. I remember I was in the hospital just connecting to the breath, connecting to the breath, connecting to the breath. Finally calmed down, came back to the retreat. You know, my team is a great team. They take care of everything. And the next day, you know, when I got home, I, uh, you know, I, I came home and I and I and I slept with my dad, you know, for the night. Mr. Fisher was there, you know, and he was pretty angry that he had to have this guy following him around, but 
you know, by then he'd kind of figured out like, you know, dad, this tumor is really big. And so if you fall, it could be really dangerous. And so because you're six foot two and you're this big guy, we don't want you to break a bone or, or a hip. And, and so you have to be nice to this guy because he has to help you. You know, we're, we got to figure this out. And we're going to, we already had a trip planned to La Paz for the Thanksgiving week. And when I came back, my dad kept talking about, well, I can't go to the trip because I have to get an MRI to have an operation. I said, listen, dad, we have these tickets. We've had them for months. We're going to go see your best friend from high school. You know, El Tio Tolón, who lives in Cabo. And so I think we're going to not go to the MRI until we come back from this vacation. Because, you know, you can always do the MRI after. And, you know, he kept insisting, and my brother, and, you know, everybody was scared, and everybody had opinions. And, you know, my brother had said he wasn't going to go to this trip. He couldn't go because he has really little kids, and my sister-in-law was on call and she's a you know she's a surgeon it was just so complicated and um but you know when it came time to realize that this was the last trip we were going to do with him we were like brother you have to come dude you have to come you know just even if you just fly down there for this for this this gathering because we flew down to La Paz the whole family from Sunday to Friday but we had this lunch with my dad's best friend and his kids who, you know, they're like family. We, we grew up with them. And I said, you have to come because it's the last time. This is the last time that we're going to be able to be with him. And, you know, ever since the doctor prescribed this thing to my dad, I forget what it's called, like this steroid for anti-inflammation, he pretty much got his shit back together. He, he was energetic. The, the anti-inflammatory mm, effects came in. So he was pretty chill, but very scared, you know. And I said, Dad, you know, what do you want? Do you want a trip or you want the surgery? He's like, you know what? Let's go on the trip and then I'll do the MRI after. Because, you know, the, the medical people here were like, well, the MRI, we can't really schedule it until a month, you know, all the way into December because we're busy. And, you know, there's no MRI technicians unless he gets admitted to the hospital. Because when you have a pacemaker, you have to have the pacemaker technician right there next to you when you do the MRI in case, you know, the magnetic resonance fucks up the pacemaker where you have to have the tech there to turn it back on again. So it's like this huge thing. And, you know, if you get admitted to the hospital, it's the same thing. You still have to wait for the technician to come. And it was Thanksgiving week. And the fucking medical system sucks out. And so anyway, long story short, we just decided... I called his doctor and I said, what are we going to do about this? Because we have this journey, we have this trip we have to go to. And what if something happens to him down there? You know, and his doctor, who's great, um, you know, she was my mom's doctor, she's a geriatric. She's like, listen, you take him on the trip and if anything happens down there, well, you can get medical care down there. So here we go, dad in the wheelchair, in the airplane, all, you know, 12 people in the family with the little steroid medicine and you know my dad was so worried the whole trip where are we going and you can't leave me i have the passport because already the tumor even though he was 
you know, a little bit better with the inflammation. He was very scared, very worried. We had to be there with him the entire time. And when we got there to La Paz, all of the family went to dinner. You know, here we are, you know, my sister, her husband, all their kids, my husband, all my kids. And we're in the restaurant and my dad looks at us and he's just like, girls, girls, thank you. Thank you for this. And, you know, we're having dinner. It's like literally like the last supper, you know, it's like we knew this was coming and it was like, what do you mean, dad? Thank you. You know, and all the kids saying cheers. And and it was, you know, every breakfast and every dinner that we had there outside in the by the ocean and in the warmth was just like we would cry and we would say thank you. And we would talk about, you know, maybe the MRI and I can have this operation. And it was like one day to the next, he would be slower and slower and slower and slower in the walking. And we still had to go to this trip down to Cabo. So I texted the doctor one day. I'm like, um, well, my dad is actually sleeping, you know, a lot more hours during the day. And we're in the south of Baja California and I have to go take him to see his friend. Do I give him a little more of this medication? little more of the steroids the doctor texted me she's like give me one second let me text the, n- the neurosurgeon and you know 20 minutes later she texts me back like yes instead of three times a day give it to him four times a day and I'm like dad we're gonna go see your friend okay you gotta rally dude and he was like yes yes we're gonna go see him you know where we rented this well this this service right this big Black Suburban came to pick us up with the most coolest, nicest driver ever. And off we went to Cabo from La Paz, you know, Julio, um, my dad, Mr. Fisher, and the chauffeur and I. My brother flew to Cabo and he met us there. And when we showed up at this place, and my dad saw his 88-year-old friend. And he had, you know, he had come over about three years ago, but they were in a much better position. They saw each other and just the face of my uncle the expression of, you know, disbelief when he saw the state my dad was in. And it's like, you know, it's a mirror of, holy shit, <laughs> we're in our late 80s. Like, this journey here is almost over. You know, they sat down and they started talking shit and, you know, giving each other, you know, joking around, which is how they've always, you know, gotten along. And it was the most beautiful luncheon it was really hard to keep it together. You know, I wanted to show up there and just break down and weep in front of everybody, but it was, you know, you just like, gotta stay strong for my dad and deep breaths, deep breaths. And, you know, he sat down with his best friend and Rodrigo, my, my uh, uncle's son, was like, hey, let's call, you know, one of the other best friends who lives in Morelos and let's put, they put up a big iPad and, you know, it's like this <laughs> little old man. <laughs> telling each other like oh my god what are you doing compadre you know and laughing and telling jokes and one one of them told my dad i love you brother and my dad's just you know there's like this knot in his throat he couldn't say anything and you know they kept joking like come on now man you know he's gonna he's gonna want to be your girlfriend i mean they're just they love each other, but this is just the way they communicate. My dad's finally like, yeah, yeah, let's get engaged, whatever. You know, like he had to crack the jokes, but he was in this position of, 
you know, shoulders down, grabbing his hands, trying to talk, trying to be positive, but the whole time just thinking, this is the end. And after the lunch, they played a game of dominoes. My brother, Tolon, his sons. Of course, my dad won every game. <laughs> you know, and when we drove back, um, you know, stopping every 15 minutes in the freeway because, you know, my dad, besides this tumor, he had an enlarged prostate, so we had to go to the bathroom all the time. And I just wanted to get back and be at the beach and get on that airplane and make it back to San Diego without him dying in Mexico. And I got to the, we got back to the house. My sister, everybody came over. My sister rented these two really cool homes right in front of the beach. And I said, listen, what in the fuck are we doing? And she's like, oh my God, we got to get back home. What? This is so intense, you know. But that night, all of the grandkids came over by the table. And we were having snacks at midnight after coming back from this luncheon. And it's as if the kids knew, you know. Abuelo, tell us about your childhood and tell us about this and tell us about that. And there was my dad telling them stories and telling them jokes and answering their questions. And you know, on the way back, on the way back from La Paz, my brother was like, dude, we got to get a bottle of mezcal because... And I'm like, no, we're not going to drink. What are you talking about? He's like, we got to stop at the store, you know? And I said, well, I guess your dad's dying. You have a little shot of mezcal, you know? And so the kids were there. And, of course, everyone drank the whole bottle. And we're talking and laughing and crying. And the next morning, you know, my dad didn't want to wake up. And he just wanted to lay in bed on day. And I said, we're going to the ocean. And you're getting your feet in the sand. We love the ocean. And it really literally took us like <laughs> an hour to convince him to take off his shoes, to walk down into the sand. You know, I, 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 you know, his feet hurt a lot walking because he'd always had issues with his feet. My dad, when he was born, his mom died in childbirth. So for the first seven years of his life, he, he lived with his grandparents, with his dad's parents. And then... His, his dad married my, his stepmom, who wasn't really very nice to him. She had three other kids, and, and you know, well, they all had issues with her, but in particular, she wasn't nice to my dad. And the story goes that they wouldn't buy my dad's shoes that would fit him well enough. So his feet got kind of, you know, crumpled up. So he always had issues with his feet. And walking in the sand... You know, we always had to get like just shoes that were really extra, triple wide, and you go to the podiatrist every month. And so when he got his feet in the sand and he sat down, it was like, and I'll post a picture of this here on when I post this podcast. It was, it was just like he sat down, feet on the sand, and he just took a deep breath and said, "Ay, qué gusto se está aquí, verdad?" Like it's so nice to be here on the sand on the ocean. It's so comfortable, he said. I was like, isn't it? And see, there you are with your feet in the sand. And he sat down there, you know, we ordered lunch there. And when he finally, you know, wanted to go back to the room, we took him back to the room with Mr. Fisher. And I came back down to talk to my sister. And I literally just 
on my knees, fell on the sand, and I cracked open. I told my sister, I can't, dude. I just can't. It was like my body somatically couldn't handle this realization, you know, the pain. I was weeping. I think my sister knew what to do with me. She was just like, you know, patting my back, like, I know, I know. Oh my God, oh my God. And it was like, this is worse than my mom. Like, I can handle my mom's death, but this is just, it's just too much, you know. And, you know, the kids came back and people are coming and going. So the moment passed and we went out to dinner again. The same. Girls, girls, kids, thank you, thank you, you know. It was like a whole month of thank you and goodbye and I said, I love you. And when we got back to San Diego, which, oh my goodness, it was like all I really needed was to get on that airplane and please just get back across the border. I literally almost kissed the ground when we were in California. We got home and the doctor texted me. He says, she says, are you guys home? I'm like, yeah, we're just across the border. We're heading home. It's like 7 or 8 p.m. at night. She tells me, head to the hospital, and you got to get your dad admitted. I'm like, what in the heck is wrong with you? We just got back home. We're going home, and he's going to go to sleep in his own bed. No, you need to check him in the hospital because we need to make sure, you know, that everything's... I'm like, we need to make sure what? No, he's not going to the hospital. We're going home. I'm not going to put him in the hospital right now. She says, well, okay, he can sleep at his house, but you need to take him tomorrow, take him to the hospital, take him to to this particular hospital. And I told my sister, what the fuck do they want him to go to the hospital for? I had already asked this doctor, by the way. The first time she gave me this diagnosis, I said, okay, call in hospice. Because the doctor needs to order hospice, right? No, not yet. We're going to wait. I'm like, we're going to wait for what? We need to call in hospice. You know, they're, they're going to help. You know, they, they they do anything they can to make this not just physically more comfortable, but... They bring in the therapy dogs and the therapy music and they, you know, bring the social workers and whatever your religion is, they have the spiritual person. I mean, they're very, very helpful. But she didn't want to do it then. And we get back from Cabo and she's telling me, oh, go to the hospital. No, I'm not going to the hospital. And, you know, the next day was my birthday. So my brother-in-law told my told me, you know what, you go chill for your birthday. We're going to take your dad to the hospital your sister and I will take. I said, all right, well, the next day I go, if you need to go to the hospital, fine. But I told my sister, you know, the hospital works for you. Those doctors in there work for you. So if you're following the doctor's orders, just to be quote unquote safe, and you need to go in there so they can do whatever test they need to do, fine. But that dude is sleeping in his home. You bring him back here because he is not going to get checked into the hospital and he's not going to sleep there. I don't care if they wear a robe or not. My dad pays the money for that insurance and they work for him. Because they do. They work for you. And she went to the hospital with that attitude. And of course, we went to the nicer hospital because... What the heck? You pay so much insurance. Why are you going to go to some shitty hospital where everybody, you know, all the transients and, you know, all this madness is going, well, you can go to a nicer one because you've been paying for this insurance and you're 88 years old. And at this point, might as well have a nicer hospital. And she went in there with specifically that attitude. Meanwhile, I'm crying my eyes out, driving around with my kids and my husband 
thinking I need to be there, but I'm like, okay, no, they got it. I'm going to wait at home because if I went to the hospital, there was going to be trouble. And, you know, the doctor checks my dad and tells my sister, why is this man here? This man is dying. And at this point, you can't have an operation because he's 88 years old and he's going to die in the operating table. My sister told him, well, I don't know why he's here. We're following doctor's orders. So you do your tests and you sign him off because we're heading home. Because if he's dying, he's going to die in dignity in his own home with his family and not in the hospital. You know, my sister sent me a text saying the doctor told her, well, I commend you for your attitude. Because, oh my gosh, if you have to go to the hospital, I hope you have someone there to advocate for you because, you know, they can be great when your appendix bursts or when you break a leg, but, you know, there's a lot of other things that we really give them too much power for. And it's your right, it's your body, and you can have second and third opinions and you can ask, you know, for your needs. And so anyway, she, she, she texted me. She says, okay, we're getting cleared. We're going to go home. I think they were in there like a few hours, but then the doctor said, listen, I have to tell this to your dad straight up. Cause my dad was still, you know, a hundred percent cognitive. He knew what was going on. So he, the doctor went and told my dad, sir, this tumor, if I operate you, you will most likely die on the operating table. Would you like to die in the hospital or would you like to go home and wait it out and die with your family? I mean, straight up. And my dad said, no, I want to go home and be with my family. And so they drove home and you know, I was waiting here. It was my birthday, so we had a lot of firewood ready. My dad's apartment, his Airbnb, is opened up straight up to the patio where we have, like, this huge fire pit. And we were, you know, getting the fire ready. And when my dad walked in, you know, with his walker, Mr. Fisher, my sister, my brother-in-law, I just saw him. And I just gave him a hug and we wept, man. I just lost it. Like, I had never, you know, you always kind of try to, or at least me, you know, um, and if you've been listening to this podcast, you know I complain a lot, and I, you know, I, I'm a trauma therapist. So I'm always in trauma school and learning about these things and childhood stuff, and it's been so intensely profound all this work that I've done these past four years and on figuring out my relationship with my dad. And when he showed up, and I just lost it and wept and wept and wept and wept, and we hugged each other. My dad isn't really like a hugger dude. Maybe when we were little, of course. I mean, when we were little. <laughs> you know, my dad used to take us, well, first he used to take me to school. He would drive me to school every day. And every day when he would come home, when we grew up in Mexico City, when we were little, we would hear him, my brother and sister and I would hear him, like, you know, open the door, and he'd say, where are my children? And we would just lose it, like, oh, my God, he's home. We have to hide, we have to hide. And the three of us would go behind the sofa in the TV room and hide and just tremble and be so excited until he came and found us and tickled us and hugged us and kissed us. And every day was the same thing. And of course, every day we thought it was like the brand new, you know, he was never going to find us. We never thought about hiding anywhere else. That was just the game, you know, that my dad would come home. 
<laughs> and run upstairs and find this while we were quote unquote hiding. And, um, you know, it's funny thinking about it because, you know, this attachment theory about who do you attach to more? You're attached to your caregivers, your mom, your dad. I'm definitely way more attached to my dad if I think about it. Because it was so much more intense than when my mom died. And, you know, he was always just, he was always there. I'd get in, you know, if I crashed the car, dad, I fucking crashed the car. He'd be like, oh shit, don't tell your mom, okay, let's fix it, you know. Or anything you needed, he was always there. And, you know, for a long time I would complain about how he wasn't really interested in what I did for my life, you know. Like, I don't think he knew about this podcast. You know, I don't think he, he wasn't very, like, overly excited about me singing and all of the bands that I've sang in or, or any of the projects I've done. He was just like, you know, are you working? Okay, good. Are you? Where's the kids? Where's the kids? You know, just... But he was just like always so present and always available. Um, and during the time that he lived with me, there was a moment there of about six months that I was in the middle of this process and the compassionate inquiry therapy where I was really touching into some of the stuff that I was angry about, you know, in my childhood and my teenage years and my 20s. And he got, <laughs> you know, I was just dishing it out. My dad and I had lunch together every day, almost every day here at my house. Sometimes Julio was there, sometimes Paula, you know, there was sometimes guests and stuff, but it was definitely him and I having our lunch every day. <clears throat> and because I work from home and, you know, I, I tell, you know what, dad, do you remember that time when you sent me on this freaking blind date? And I was like in my early 20s and you and mom set me up with this guy, you know, like I was cattle and you were off sending me off, you know, off to the range to see if somebody was going to marry me. And he would just sit there and look at me like, what? No, I don't. What do you mean you don't remember? And you know what I did? I went out with this guy. And the first thing I told him was, number one, I'm never getting married. Number two, I'm never having kids. Number three, I'm getting drunk as fuck. And you're taking me to the baby rock. And the guy thought it was hilarious, and I told that, my dad, and I ended up at the Baby Rock, and I told him he wasn't going to take me home, and I got home by myself. My father just, I mean, this is what he asks me. He doesn't even remember that they made me do these stupid-ass blind dates, which is kind of a old-school Mexican thing, I guess, and he says, what do you mean he didn't bring you home? I'm like, that's what you're worried about? You wouldn't worry about my brother not having, you know, be home with his date. I mean, these standards are ridiculous. You know, I just would dish it out every day, every day, every day for months. I would just be like, and this other blind date you said. And you know, my mother went from one set of slaves to the other. And you were in the patriarchy. And, you know, this and this and that. And he would sit there and just drink his soup and eat his salad. <laughs> and never really, you know say anything like listen you ungrateful person or no that's not you know he just took it and took it and just sat there and was like you know yeah wow yeah you know and I didn't realize it at the time but he was basically listening to me receiving it receiving it receiving it like yeah <laughs> let it out baby girl you know I'm here 
and I can take it. Um, you know, as time went by, I got a little less aggressive, <laughs> a little more, you know, I got it out, but it was there allowing me to get it out. And, you know, before I came back from that Tepoztlan retreat, when he first started to lose his mind a bit, it was a retreat where I was in this journey. And one of the visions that I had, it was a mushroom journey with this amazing, really cool teacher, sound guy, Alexander Tanu. Part of the vision was, you know, I was revisiting, you know, my life and the childhood. And it's just this great medicine for trauma and for just healing. And I kept seeing my dad in the doorway of the Airbnb, bright, 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 like yellow, bright light. But he wasn't, you know, he was like at the door, not coming in, not coming out. And I kept thinking in my journey, what does this mean? Like, is he at the doorway? Is he, why doesn't he come out? Why is he just sitting there? Why is he so colored? He's just there. And, you know, maybe it was a vision of him at the doorway ready to leave. And I just, I don't know. Somebody just showed me that. I don't know, man. The mushrooms show you things sometimes that are very interesting and so that was my dad you know we had this really cool relationship but at the same time only in the last month was I able to be straight up me 150% with him because there was always this you know I mean, I would talk to him straight up when I was angry and this and that. But for the most part, I was trying to make sure he was okay and taking care of him. And, you know, I grew up as a parentified child and blah, blah, blah. But this time, you know, when he came back from the hospital and we were standing outside the day of my birthday, I told him, like, just straight up, what the fuck, Dad? What is this? What is this life like? Was this like a cosmic joke? You know? And he's looking at me like, I mean, yeah, you're born into this planet, you know, you have a life, you know, you meet your person, you have kids, you travel, you have your friends, you experiment all this love and taste all this good food and, you know, sing in the rain and dance in the ocean and, and all of a sudden, okay, you're dying, what the fuck, it's over, what is this, like a joke, what is this? And he just looked at me, he was like, you know, he had his hand in his pockets because he would stand there. Like, my dad was always a really cool dude. You know? And he looked at me and he's like, yeah, you're right. And, you know, when he was very scared at the beginning of this tumor and death, and my sister asked me, what, what's going on with my dad? Why is he so scared? He's so faithful. Because my dad was very Catholic, right? I'm like, bro, I don't care how faithful you are. You know, this is some unraveling you got to go through. I don't care if you're the Dalai Lama or the Pope or fucking Mother Teresa or whoever. This shit, you know, the body wants to live. So intellectually, you might think about it, but, you know, it's 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 an intense realization. And we were at the patio just talking straight up, like, what are we going to do? Like, Well, I want a miracle. I'm like, well, me too, but, you know. Listen, we're going to do this together. And every day we sat there with the fire and I brought the band over. You know, we had all of my friends were there. Um, That day of my birthday party, he brought up the harmonica. He sang the happy birthday to me. You know, my dad was the harmonica birthday guy. Every birthday he sang the harmonica. 
estas son las mañanitas, you know, the Mexican happy birthday song. Always, always at home with the birthday cakes. But then if you weren't home, if you lived away, he always would call you. And on your birthday, you knew that phone call was coming with the harmonica. I said, Dad, you got to play the harmonica for me. You know, knowing it was like the last freaking harmonica birthday. And the whole family's there fucking weeping and laughing. All of the kids. And he played the song. And, you know, the next day we got together again. And we had the fire. And between crying and weeping, I brought the band that we play with. And I said, you guys, can we practice at my house? Because, you know, my dad needs to listen to some live music. And he didn't really want to get up out of the wheelchair anymore because he was just like, I just want to lay down. I'm like, no, 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 listen, let's go outside. Let's listen to the music. And we, you know, Lucas and Sal and Jillian and Gloria came over and, you know, we're singing. I'm like, we're going to sing songs about God, Dad, for the great spirit. <laughs> These were the, the songs we sing when we do Mushroom Journeys and or, or Temascales, and we're just, you know, connecting to Earth. And he would look at some of the pictures of his kids on the side of the wall, look at the band, look at me, and he was just crying and crying. It was really hard to not lose my shit and keep on singing, but, you know, the next day he's like, where's the music again? And so we played more music, and we had the fire, and our friends would come over, and there was that fire outside of the house. Never stopped, and, you know, I always try to give my dad mushrooms. Of course, you know, he lived with me, he knows I... I work with mushrooms, and I said, listen, microdoses will really be good for you, you know, to for cognitive, um, you know, to keep your memory, and I would send him all this research, and he would just, you know, the next morning say, what's that article you sent me? You want me to take what? And I'd give him the microdose, but he wouldn't take it, and of course, now that there was no way out, he tells me, uh, Gris, what about those mushrooms that you were talking about? You know, by then, I um, you know, you can give him a little microdose mushroom here and there, but we decided, you know, my friend Gloria had, throughout her whole year of chemotherapy treatment, microdose with peyote. And peyote really kept her in her body really very, very grounded. So we said, well, let's make some peyote tea, Dad. This is a tea from the Wicholas. This is a tea from my friend Gloria. And he's like, oh, Gloria, the one who was healed from cancer. I said, yeah, that's the one. So we got the Moronella tea, which is like this regenerative tea. You know, it regenerates the cells, and it's very healing. And microdose some peyote. And he would drink his tea and get into this meditative state where he was just grateful. And we would talk about the love that we'd share together in our lives, and we would talk about these beautiful things, and he wouldn't be anxious. So, you know, we'd ask for more tea and more tea and... You know, at one point, <laughs> we were drinking the tea, and my brother would give me a little bit of shit about, what are you giving him this tea? And Gloria was here, and we explained it to him, and he's like, he came outside once, because, you know, we'd sit in the fire, and everybody would take turns being with my dad. He was never alone. We never left him alone. One evening, my brother comes out and tells me, my dad's in there telling me he doesn't feel God. I'm like, well, let's give him some more tea, because he's definitely going to feel God if we give it to him. He's like, oh, shit, well, fine, just give him the tea, you know, give him the tea. And my brother and I are sitting with him 45 minutes later. My dad's laying in bed, and, you know, we go in and out of sleep, 
and they're all asleep. And at one point he tells me, he's like, kids, kids, kids. I'm like, what's up, dad? Because by then we were very much paying attention to when he woke up, the things that he would say, right? Because they're kind of going in and out of this realm of the afterlife or the other life inside the body, you know, coming in and out. And he tells us, kids, kids, right now we are all in a very, very cool status. <laughs> I'm like, what? What, Dad? My brother and I both lean in and he's like, he has his eyes closed and he's laying down and he's like, all of us right here are in a very cool state, very cool status. I'm like, yeah, Dad, that tea's really good. It's working out, huh? He was like, I love you guys. And, you know, one after the other after that, this, this tea helped him stay in his body and be very connected to memories of love and very in the present moment. And it was a constant thank you, thank you, I love you. You know, I told him, listen, Dad, you know what? Honestly, dude, you're such a kick-ass dad. I go, you, because we were when we were living in Mexico City, at one point where I was like nine years old, my parents were going through it because I think they were going to get a divorce. I think I walked in the room and I overheard them. Oh, they're getting a divorce. <clears throat> and then they told us some bullshit lie that it wasn't. No, no, we're not getting a divorce. But next thing you know, my brother and sister and I are on an airplane flying across country to be with, you know, they left us with some aunt for a couple months. <clears throat> while they were figuring it out. And I told my dad, you know, that move you did from Mexico City to Tijuana was fucking brilliant. You know, we like started it up again and you kept your family together and you were always there for me. And, you know, my brother and sister and I, we get along really well and there's always laughter. There's no fucking family drama between us. I mean, the regular one. Of course there's some, you know, but... We literally are a close-knit family. Like every Sunday since I can remember, we're together. Eating lunch at the park, to the beach, at the movies. But, you know, once in a while you miss it here and there. But I said, you really created this unified family. And I'm very grateful for that. You know, I mean, you, you put us all through college You've helped us in when I've had issues with my marriage or with the kids. You've always been there for us. And you did such a fucking amazing job. I told them in Spanish, Te aventaste un jalesote. You know, and that's total slang for like a badass job. But my dad was like, what? What does that mean? <laughs> I'm like, you know, like, you know, my dad was an engineer. He's a mechanical engineer. So he would um, install, you know, design and install huge like air conditioning projects like at the airport and huge malls and big factories and do you want to and, and I'm like you know like when you do one of those huge huge jobs that you're like wow that was a very big project oh yeah like one of those big pro yes exactly like that that's what you did in our life that's what you did as a father for us and thank you you know I don't I don't know how else to say you how fucking awesome you are. And he would just look at me like, yeah, you know, of course he would take it in. And, you know, at the same time, he was also like, it was just so bittersweet. And I really wanted him to know how good he was because, he, you know, of course we had to call the priest at one point. 
oh my god when he got the diagnosis call the priest call the priest so we call our friend the priest my brother's friend and he came over and you know he's telling the priest i'm gonna die and the priest says like listen i'm gonna give you these oils whatever oils they give you before you die but this isn't because you're dying these are oils for grace and you know he explained the history of it it wasn't even christian it was like muslim it was this priest is really is really cool and he told them you know you are in the present moment you need to be in this present moment because right before the priest arrived or was coming up to say hello to him my little niece she's four years old was like abuelo i'm gonna help you with your you know with your chair what's going on abuelo and my dad was like i'm dying camila camila's like you're dying <laughs> you're dying abuelo and the priest was like what the fuck are you doing well, he didn't say what the f, right? He just said, "Luis, you can't be saying that. You're gonna traumatize them. Kids understand death. They're gonna be fine. But you need to tell her, I'll see you tomorrow. Every time she leaves your presence, I'll see you tomorrow. I'll see you tomorrow until you don't see her tomorrow. Because you're in life and you're in the present and you have all this love surrounding you. So you need to, you know, have a good attitude. You don't know this tumor could last five years." before it gets you so you know kudos to the priest who gave him a really cool pep talk and but after he left and my dad got all chippy chippy again he would tell me like oh i got the last rites and he absolved me of my sins i'm like what sins what are you talking about which is when i gave him the whole gratitude offering of i think you did a great job you know Everyone's doing the best they can. And what is even sin anyways? You know, that's just, oh man, some man-made concept to control you. And I would always argue about these things with him, but, well, I didn't say anything because he's about ready to leave. And if he is, was comfortable with the oils, you know, God bless him with the oils. But it was this, the next day, I had this, I had a, a ceremony planned, right? And we had a lot of other people coming in from, from all over the place. And we went up to the mountains. And I told my sister, you need to sleep with my dad today because I'm going to be in the ceremony. And if anything happens, you call me. And this was Saturday, December 2nd. My dad died on Monday. And that Saturday, as we were getting ready to go, you know, the, 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 the evening before, my dad was talking, playing dominoes with my sister and Chris and the kids. At night, he was asking Julio and I for ice cream. And, and you know, and he started to get a little bit of that end-of-life anxiety. And I've been with a lot of people that die. And the body starts to kind of go into labor, right? It's like when you're going to have a baby and you go into labor, your body kind of trembles a little. And the temperature changes inside of you. And you get a little bit of, you know, like contractions kind of thing. So I, I saw it on Friday. I said, oh, fuck, here we go. You know, he said to me, I'm really hot. Go get your hands wet and put them on my face. And I would get my hands wet and I put them on my face and he wanted water and we got a little cold towel and he would drink the water and, and you know, he finally calmed down and went to sleep. And hospice had come about 10 days prior to this, you know, instead of, you know, they should have been here a month ago, but finally when they went to the hospital and my sister took him, Oh, now they could check the box and send hospice over, right? Because 
this is the system and that's how it works. So just a heads up, if you're in the situation, advocate for a sooner hospice decision. They already had the freaking MRI. These 88 years old, what kind of cover your ass situation is this? But it was, it's a cover your ass situation. And the funny thing is when I told this to the priest, he, he before I even said it, he's like, yeah, they're covering their ass because I'm, I'm sure he sees a lot more of these cases being being a priest, you know, and, you know, it's funny because that first, that was the first time he came in and I was able to see this guy as just this dude who has a vocation of connecting to people's fears and hearts and spirituality and giving them comfort in whatever culture that he's in, you know, he's in the Christian culture, I'm in the earth culture, somebody's in the Muslim culture, somebody's in some other culture, but it was like this, I just saw him as this dude. Like it's just no hierarchies, no better thans. Just straight up, thank you, man. Thanks for coming over. You know, he said to me, I know your dad and this is going to be really difficult, just so you know. Well, thanks, you know, that's very comforting. But anyway, my dad was getting his last rites, and I was going to the ceremony. So back to the ceremony. My sister's spending the night with him. And that morning, before we were leaving, I had him outside, and he was sitting in the wheelchair, and he started to have these anxiety attacks again. Oh, I know what I was saying. When hospice comes, they come, you know, there's all these different services, but their main thing they give you is morphine and Ativan, you know, for the anxiety. And we hadn't needed it. We hadn't given him any of that. Because he was taking a peyote tea and we were, you know, with him together, accompanying him. There wasn't any visible pain besides the emotional one. But that Saturday, when he was outside, I was sitting with him and he started to look up at the sky and his eyes were getting kind of glossy, uh, which is something that also happens when you're dying. And he just started to say, Mama, Mama, ay, 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 Mama. And he started to have these, like, this anxiousness. And I'm like, Dad, are you okay? Dad, look at me. Dad, what's going on? And I met his eyes, and he looked into my eyes and looked down and said, No, no more. I can't. I'm done. I was like, Do you want some morphine? And he said, Yes. And I was like, Oh, shit, here we go, man. There was at this, it's at this point, you know, my friend Jillian was telling me, it's like you're at this point where you can't turn back anymore because your body's just not well. And you're on the edge of like going into this next journey, this next life. So there's no turning back, but it's, but it's hard to let go. You're like in this portal and, you know, he had done so much unraveling that whole month. And I, I was like, all right, let's, it's time for the morphine. Let's go. Gave him some morphine, gave him some Ativan, took him a little bit. He finally calmed down, lay down in the bed. And my sister spent the night with him while I was over there in the mountains, just praying. Like we offered the ceremony for him, for Louise. People kept saying for Louise. And, you know, he was just, he showed up. But at one point in this ceremony, in this concert, you know, it's a very healing experience. And I was sitting there. 
I don't know, it was like maybe like an hour or two into it, but I remember feeling like that same give out that I had back in the beach in La Paz. Like, I can't do this. I'm not going to make it. Like, my body's going to crash right here and my stomach. And I just, and, you know, I remember just breathe. Just move the water inside your spinal cord. Just breathe. You know, just connect to love and, you know, to the most compassionate Kuan Yin, great mother. And my energy came back and I started singing again and singing. And we offered the whole night to him. The next morning in the sweat lodge, offered the whole sweat lodge to him. And it was like we were sending him off, you know. And everybody, everybody knew everybody when they left felt like we felt your dad. It was so beautiful. And, you know, the next Sunday, he, he stopped talking. And on Monday, you know, I was outside working with the patio, walking around. and <clears throat> Well, I mean, actually, I woke up at 3 in the morning because I knew something was going on. And I told Julio, we got to go see my dad, you know. <clears throat> we just went straight up into his room. And he was having, you know, like more that, that like anxious movement of his body again. Like, oh, my God, oh, my God. I'm like, you know, because if you don't give him morphine every four hours, well, this this happens, but when you're sleeping, so here we go, the morphine, the adamant, the reiki, massaging, helping him breathe, he wasn't breathing. Finally, it took us like an hour until he calmed down and fell asleep. And the next morning, as I was walking around, Mr. Fisher came outside. But by the way, I just got to say that this Mr. Fisher guy, some guide or ancestor sent him because... He was so good to my dad. Even though my dad locked him out the first, you know, first couple of days he was here, he come in and say, "Do you have the code for the door? Because uh, your father locked me out." You know, and he kept he kept running away from my dad, walking around the block by himself. Either we, we told him, "Please don't walk by yourself." But after like three or four days, Mister Fisher and him they just took to this friendship. And Fisher was a very faithful man, so he was always talking to my dad about faith and about, you know his emotions and helped them. And, you know, after about 10 days, my dad said to me, you know, that Mr. Fisher, he's a really good man. I said, yeah, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, he's a little overkill at times, but he's a very good man. And so Mr. Fisher came out that Monday and said, Senora, your, your dad is, um, his breathing is slowing down. And I ran in and I knelt next to him and, Sure enough, he was like just sleeping, but the breath was taking really, really long to come in and then really, really long to come out. So I texted my sister and my brother. I'm like, you guys got to get over here because he's leaving. But like two breaths later was his last breath. And I just sat there on my knees and just said, thank you. Thank you, Dad. And just cried and cried and cried and my daughter was there. He called my son. We called Julio. Every, you know, my sister. Everybody came over. And this time, everybody participated in, you know, taking care of him, taking care of his body. You know, warm water with rose petals and lots of essential oils. Everybody bathed them, and I'm talking about one, two, three, four, five, six grandkids 
from 23 years old all the way to 11 with the towel, you know, bathing him. And we wanted to get him a suit to for his funeral, but it didn't arrive in the mail. So, you know, my nephew, Nico, is out buying the suit and sending us pictures, FaceTiming us. Is this one cool? Is this one cool? You know, the, they came back with the suit and we got him prepared. And we lit the candles. The boys got him dressed. We put him in the middle of the bed. Got the dried eyes because we were going to have the viewing at home just like we did with my mom. And, you know, Gloria and Lucas and Jill, the, all the musicians from from the team, you know, the friends were going to come over to play and practice that day. But I texted and I'm like, well, he's gone. But, you know, if you guys can come anyway and play during the viewing. So, of course, Gloria shows up with her incense and her pig feathers and starts to clear the room and bless my dad and honor him for all of his life and all of his seed. And my brother and my sister-in-law were just watching, like, what is this, you know? And, of course, my brother walked over to Lucas, who was playing the guitar, and asked him, like, uh, are you Catholic? Because <laughs> my brother's still, you know, on the Catholic trip, and... Lucas is from Brazil, and he's like, yeah, 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 you know. Because my dad was Catholic. Gloria's like, yeah, put the cross up there, you know. We're just blessing him, but it was... So, you know, everybody has their own ways to perceive love in the afterlife. And as Gloria was clearing the space, and and Lucas was playing guitar, and Jillian came, and people were singing... And, you know, fans and family started showing up with flowers and food. And the little kids, the little kids coming in, my brother's kids, which were really young, you know, they're five, six, four, and eight, jumping on the bed with him, giving him kisses and and holding his hand and writing little notes and sticking them underneath his hands and you know, all these little I love you abuelos. And people came and went for a couple of days. We had the viewing with the fire outside candles the incense and just sending him off you know my dad's brother showed up the second day of the viewing and he was present when they came and took the body which oh my god that was another I didn't think it was going to be so hard either because when they came to get him I didn't want him to take him you know I mean, this might sound sad, kind of mean, but when they came to take my mom, I was like, okay, they were taking my mom. I mean, we cried and it was brutal, but it was like, okay, you know. But with dad, it was like, oh, shit, what do you have to take him? He just looks like he's sleeping there, you know. And and we brought all the kids again, Santi and, and Nico helped lift him up and put him on this, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's called the gurney or what, but these these kids that come with the funeral home, oh, my goodness. What a job they have. So respectful. So honorable. They were like, I said, okay, so what's the deal here? Like, do you guys put him in the thing? What? And he's like, well, it's up to you, ma'am. We can put him on there for you. Most families choose to do it on their own. I said, well, then we're going to do it on our own. What are we going to do here? Well, there's a sheet. You put it underneath his body. You roll him over. Then you take the sheet over here. Then we lift him up with the sheet and put him on the gurney. And then you're welcome to fill up up with flowers so we put all the flowers inside and you know they they buckle him up in the gurney and the last thing they cover is his face and you know it's like I went over kissed his face and 
my brother, everybody's there, and we close it, and it's like, okay, well, off he goes, and they start pulling him out of the room, and when they get to the door, his brother is like, can I say goodbye? This is my dad's brother who's, I don't know, maybe he's 81. He's just one of the stepbrothers, right? So my brother was at least eight years older than him. He opens up, you know, my dad's face, gives him a kiss, says, bye, Wichol. And it was like, wow, his brother got to show up and say goodbye to him, you know? And and then they they kept rolling him out, and the whole family were walking out, you know, behind them. <laughs> we're like, holy shit, they're taking the elder, man. They're taking the father, the engineer, the grandfather, the father-in-law, so much represented in this man, you know. They put him in the car and off he goes. Um, you know, and a week later when we went to bury him, because we wanted to bury him that day. Again, there's all these rules and permits and all this shit that you have to figure out. At least here in California. By the time we have all the permits ready and blah, 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 and... um. You know, we had to go pick him up. And I was working with Glenda from the, f- the funeral home, Thresholds Family Services. You know, it's family led services. Glenda took over for Eric, and she's just great. I mean, these guys are just, they're bringing sanctity back to death. And, um, you know, she told me, You want to come with me to pick up your dad? And we picked him up put him in the box I just saw him and he still looked like he was just sleeping you know I held his hands and they were so soft and I just lost it again right I'm like oh my god when is this gonna end you know but it was just weeping and weeping and just holding his hands and this is what I talk about when I mean somatic thanatology is that you're in the body processing all this stuff present in the moment not giving a shit who's seeing or what's going on. You're just feeling it. And, you know, we brought him in the car over to the cemetery and the box kept popping open. I was like, holy shit, what the box keeps opening. And when we got to the cemetery, the lady at the cemetery, I had told her, you know, we all want to throw some dirt in there, in the in the tomb. And they said, no, we're not, we're not, we don't allow to do that. Like, what do you mean you don't allow to do that? This is like, we're paying you for this underground condo. And we're paying a shit ton of money because i it's unbelievable the amount you have to pay, you know, to bury someone. It's like this death trade for, you know, from the Industrial Revolution. Everybody moved to the cities. And so now you can't bury your dead in your property. Now you have to buy these underground condos. And it's, you know, with all these rules. And it's just, but anyway, that's what we decided because my brother wanted him nearby so they could go visit and fine you know I just I wanted him to die at peace at home and have an at-home funeral and the decision was we go to the this place and mom goes in there with him her ashes were in there with him uh oh because by the way a couple days before he died my brother called me in the room and he said come here come here sister I go what's going on he's like dad so it's okay right if we put mom in the tomb with you and he's like, yes, son, it's okay. My brother looks at me and he's like, you see? He was mom in there. I'm like, okay, yeah, 
we can put her ashes in there. Fine with me, you know. It's just ashes. <laughs> and so when we got to the cemetery, <clears throat> you know, the guys that were working there, it's a cemetery where it's mostly, you know, Mexican Mexican dead bodies. Of course, you know, it's in Chula Vista and it's Catholic and it's mostly Mexican, Italians and Chaldeans. And the workers there are Mexican. I asked them, I said, hey, what do you think, man? We'd like to be able to throw some of the dirt in the, in the tomb. And they were like, of course. Do you want to do it before or after, you know, we get the whole dirt? I'm like, whatever you say. And he's like, well, you know, traditionally you do it before. So just we'll put some dirt here so you and give you guys some shovels so you can throw the dirt in as soon as you're done with the little ceremony. And I said, well, thank you, Paisas. But, you know, before that, when we were had the box there, and the box was a little open, the young little kids were saying, I want to see Abuelo, I want to see Abuelo. And my brother was like, no, no, no. I said, look, I just saw him. He's, he looks like he's sleeping. You guys want to take a peek? So one little boy took a peek, one the other one took a peek. And my brother's like, well, I want to see him. And it's like he just looked like he was sleeping. We finally closed the box. You know, the priest friend came over and said a few words. You know, it's like, there's your mom and dad arguing in heaven. <laughs> he knew them for many, many years. Um, but it was like, you know, kind of a very peaceful closure, you know. And then, you know, they bring the box down. We're all putting the dirt in, um, covered it up with flowers again. And went back home to hang out, sit by the fire. And sit by the fire the next day and the next day. And friends and family kept coming over, paying their respects, you know. That's a funny way to say it, paying their respects. But some of the messages I got and some of the things I that I heard people say about my dad really allowed me to step back and see him from like a res like yeah he was a very respected man very well loved you know he was funny he was cool I had my issues with him because you know whatever everybody has issues with their parents but to be able to see really what he the kind of person he was the kind of family he created the kind of legacy he's leaving it was really cool. And, you know, if you're listening to this and you were one of those people that came by or showed up at the funeral or at the mass that my my, um, my siblings had for him, or thank you. Thank you. All of your messages mean a lot. That you came by with gifts or food or drinks meant a lot. Because accompaniment is what makes this life easier accompaniment, accompanying each other when there's difficult situations, when there's joyful situations, but in particular when somebody leaves because there's no other time where you're confronted by your own mortality than when your parents leave. I mean, who's next, right? In the right line of order. <clears throat> you know, one of the, one of the things 
Julio was saying about a week after, he's like, this was so intense for me. Like Julio was telling me, like, I feel like I need to go out and just scream and, you know, break something on a tree. Like I feel so much emotion because Julio was tight with my dad. I mean, he was a roommate for four years. And plus we've been together 27. And he's like, just everything that he represents what i said earlier about my dad being like the engineer and the father-in-law and the grandfather and the father and a friend and a brother i got that from julio that night where he said all this to me like this is so big and sometimes it takes death and these experiences to realize wow he was a big really big guy you know, the elder, my dad, Luis Lavicha. <laughs> so thank you, Dad. Thank you for your life and for hooking it up for us, for your unconditional love, for your jokes and for your laughter, for your mischievous ways and for always, always loving us so much. We all love you and... I really do feel you. I know you're around, brother. I know. Um, so take care of us. Take care of everybody. <laughs> Have fun wherever you're at. And everybody listening, thanks, man. Thanks for listening to Tales of Recovery. And may we live in love and in gratitude for the lives that we've, we're experiencing in this life. Aho.